Hello. Welcome to season two of Object Episodes. I'm here with Eric. Fantastic. And we're in Denmark. Yeah, we're here in Odense. And today we're going to talk about folk circus. Well, or we don't really have a good name for it, but we want to talk about what that might mean. And that was an idea that you had, Eric. What were you What were you thinking? Folk circus. Well, I don't know if it's my idea. I think it's actually more your idea because you were the one that was kind of doing it. And uh, perhaps, I mean, there's there's two starting points. There e- there's either kind of the starting point of, of Shoebox Tour or mm. there's the starting point where I became a little bit more aware of it, which is the Iceland Tours. Yeah, you came to me one day recently and you said, hey, man, or it was kind of a joke. You weren't making a joke, but I remember you were like, hey, man, something, something folk, your your folk circus thing. And I was just like, wait a second, what is that? What Where does that name come from? And what are you talking about? But pretty quickly into the conversation, I figured out what you meant. And already now in the two things you've said of like shoebox tour and the other thing I've already forgotten. Um, Iceland. Yeah, there's a lot for me to tell. <laughs> Which I haven't told you yet, so maybe I should start there and I can uncover all those things. Well, I mean, the experience for me was that we were doing those tours in the U.S., the the shoebox tour, and those tours were, we, we performed in places that usually weren't performance venues. They were people's garages or community buildings or yeah. just general general places, and I didn't think much of that then. Then at that time, I just thought about it more as of as uh, like a logistical and technical. Uh, like we didn't have lights, we don't have mm-hmm. a set, we don't have all these things, but we still do a show. So it was just more out of necessity or or just reality that that kind of format grew out. But then, when you asked me to come to Iceland. That was around the time where when uh, Sigur Rós had done the Hema, is it an album or is it a DVD to begin with? Yeah, it was some sort of movie maybe with a song. I don't remember a DVD with a soundtrack or something. I think it was more of a movie. It was a film of their tour. Right. Yeah. Which in a way, like the the Iceland tour, in a way was similar to the U.S. tours because it was also without. Uh, the production aspect of 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 uh, the yeah. performances but in iceland the sceneries and the the places we ended up with i think to us they were so so much more um, i don't know strange that they just had a greater impact on me yeah but hang on now you're super far ahead because there's a lot of stuff you don't even know i haven't even told you ever about any of this and when you start talking about Shoebox Tour, um, which was a project I had that was going around many different countries, including America and Iceland, um, this goes back to when I was eight years old. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you about that, how this all started, which, um, you know, looking back on it, I can trace the path of it. Of course, at the time, right? I had no idea that this was all going to lead up to this. <laughs> right, right, this right. Kind of thing. I mean, yeah, that was similar to when I was thinking about it. At first, it's just... Yeah. It's something you do and then you reflect on it and there's certain things that in that reflection brings clarity and then you can think about it. But certainly all these things were concrete before Shoebox Tour existed. And that's what I want to tell you about that process, right? Because if you start with Shoebox Tour, you're missing the entire kind of reasoning for how it came to exist. So basically when I was eight years old, I started uh, riding unicycles because when I was, you know, whatever, four or five, six years old or something... 
there was a girl in my class at school who rode unicycles. And so I thought, unis I thought wheel, I was fascinated with wheels, <laughs> with round things. I don't know why, just circles. And um, there was, I grew up in a farming community. And do you know what 4-H is? Do you have 4-H in Sweden? Is it the little kind of like a farm with animals and that stuff? Well, no. So 4-H is a youth club. It's kind of like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or Eagle Scouts or Cub Scouts or something. Okay. And I don't know what the 4-H's stand for. Head, heart, right, right, hand. Right. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's it's an agricultural. And I'm probably even messing that up. Mm. And now we're we're doing one of those discussions where we could have Googled ahead of time <laughs> to figure this out. But um, basically, it's a youth club with activities for kids, right? So you can do 4-H and a lot of it is agriculturally based. So you would raise a pig or raise a cow or something. And then you would show it at like the local, you know, county fair and get a blue ribbon or whatever. But for some reason, um, which I can't believe I'm, I'm this old and I've ridden unicycles since I was eight years old and I don't know this reason now in this story, but I've never told this story really. Um, the woman who ran the 4-H, local 4-H club, uh, she thought unicycling would be a cool project for kids to do. Mm -hmm. Like she came across unicycling somehow. And that's the story I should find out, right? Um, but then she was like, okay, you can raise a cow and you can ride a pig or something. Um, but you can ride a unicycle too. And then it became that in the local community, there was a unicycle club and there was practices and parades and... So the Unicycle Club, it grew out of this 4-H... Yeah, project. Uh, exactly. Okay, that I didn't know. Okay. So it was a community kind of activity. And that's why you would kind of engage youth and, you know, you would ride in the Halloween parade and the 4th of July parade and all these things in America and Ohio. And so uh, I got into unicycle culture. That's where I'm getting with this. And from the moment I got into unicycle culture... I was confronted with a couple of issues that are going to come up later in folk circus. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, in unicycle culture, beyond this 4-H club, which was about community activities, you would go to the unicycle. If you talk about just unicycle culture on its own outside of this 4-H club, it was all about competitions. So you would do you would have a unicycle meet like a like a juggling festival, but it was a unicycle festival, a convention, meeting, whatever. And then you would do races uh, for a few days. You would race, and then the other couple of days, what you would do is little performances, and they would call them routines. And they would be like a freestyle routine, or a I don't know the other standard routine. That was another one, which was more like compulsories and figure skating, where there's no music and you. Have to you say I'm going to do these ten tricks in a row, and you have to do like the figure eight perfectly. That was a standard routine, but then the was it called freestyle routine? No, I'm I'm forgetting all this. It was so long ago. You had music, and that's where I'm getting to my point here. So you know what happens when you have music in a show? Do you know like the the essential <laughs> ingredient there? It's a music cue. <laughs> it's your music cue. So I totally remember this being eight years old and being like, okay, I'm going to do that. And it was two minutes long. The routine was two minutes. You got a two minute time limit for your age group, you know? And I think if you were over whatever age, you know, 14, you got three minutes, you know? So I was eight years old. So I got two minutes or something. And it's that moment of like, when am I going to tell the technician to start the music? So there was already a technician in my life, right? Like there was a relationship to a person who was called a technician, and there was already the the choreographic or what do you call it the structural 
you know, moment, even when you're eight years old of like, okay, are they going to start the music first and then I get on the unicycle or do I get on the unicycle and then they start the music and when does the two minutes start and when does it stop? Like all these like little silly things at the time are trivial, right? Um, but it was already in my brain, this idea of like, well, somebody's got to start the music and it's not me. <laughs> and there's a relationship there. There's a communication as well that like I have to express to someone. And when you're eight years old, I mean, that's a big deal to have to tell somebody to be precise and to have a thought and like to even be aware of those things, right? So through unicycle culture, um, I had an immediate relationship with this idea of the infrastructure of performing, which is that you're not alone on stage generally. There's a, there's a big uh, community or, or team of people around the whole event. I mean, even at the unicycle meet when I was eight years old, there's the Wrangler, like the like that was not the that was not the the name, but like it was the person who, uh, okay, Eric, you're coming up in two, you know, you're coming up next, <laughs> like gotta go find Eric, um, so that was kind of funny, and so then again, growing up uh, in this kind of that was a type of performance. I mean, very strict type of performance, but then through the unicycle world, I got into more performing, and then it was like, hey, come. Like I said, this unicycle group, we were doing community events like a parade and a celebration, a Christmas parade, whatever. And then it was like, oh, hey, the Cub Scout Blue and Gold Banquet, they need a entertainment every month, I mean, or every year for the end of the year ceremony. So then, um, oh, Jay could come and juggle for <laughs> half an hour. And then in that case, I remember, you know, cassette tapes lined up and sometimes maybe I'd ask my mom or dad to press play. Or sometimes I would do it. Like I just have a cassette player there and I would go do the music because it's like in the local, you know, fire station. There's I'm not on a stage with a theater, with a tech booth, with curtains and spotlights and all this, right? So this is already the start of performing in, in non-traditional theatrical venues for, for lack of a better term. I mean, it was literally the firehouse station, dude. They would drive the fire trucks outside the building they would close the garage door. The kids would be standing around in their Halloween costumes. This is true, you know? And then I'm there with my boom box with the cassette player. And then it's like, well, time for my three ball routine. I guess I'll press play, right? And then the cassette goes. And I hope that I rewound it and all this stuff beforehand. And then you mm -hmm. forget and whatever else. And so this continues on, uh, blah, blah, blah. I'll skip a bunch of time here. And then I'm, I'm more into juggling and I'm starting to go to juggling festivals. And then the experience I had in juggling festivals is one that I'm guessing you've had, which is you go, to, you're going to go, um, I'm just really generalizing here. I have to say I've had amazing with you. I've had amazing experiences at juggling festivals. And also I think with you, I've had pretty, some pretty terrible experiences at juggling festivals in terms of tech, like technique of lighting and sound and rehearsals. Oh and, yeah. Com experienced complete train wrecks in terms of I mean the the, the normal like for every act in a gala show like sure complete sure but what, 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 this is this yeah. is a great thing to stick on for a second um <laughs> to, to, to to talk about for a second in terms of, especially in terms of folk circus because generally the rhythm goes like this you're at a juggling festival and then it's like oh you're gonna perform in the public show in the gala on Saturday so all the artists meet Saturday morning, right? At 11 in the morning. And then there's a box of donuts if you're in America, which is amazing. And then you're all there and you get your time slot for the day. Okay, Eric, you come back at two o'clock, right? 
But the thing is, at 11 o'clock, the lights haven't been hung up. It's the first time, because they just rent the theater by the day. So at 11 o'clock, they have to start hanging the lights, and then they make a general wash, and that takes too long, so the schedule gets bumped. So you come at 2 in the afternoon, <laughs> and your time slot has been pushed back by like an hour and a half. And this is just a knock-on domino effect that goes for the entire day. Everybody's late. Everybody's panicked. You get on stage, you think you're going to run your piece like, oh, maybe I'll run my piece two or three times because they said you get a half hour long slot. Right. And then you get on stage and they're like, oh, we're super late. Like, can you just can you just set your lights and leave? And you don't get to run through it once. You don't check the levels of the sound. You give some cues to the technicians and they just write them down. But you don't have time to rehearse them. Right. And so this was the situation I found myself in time and time again. And many times, you know, it was fine. It like I, I wouldn't say that it went well. But I think the performance was fine. The audience didn't mind. It wasn't a disaster that I wanted to quit performing and the audience hated me. But it was like, I just remember like one of my biggest, uh, uh, what, um, yeah, my, the thing that scared me the most, my biggest fear, I guess I was saying, is that a lot of my routines when I was um, like a teenager, I would really start them on the music, you know? So I would count out the music. Okay, the music has an intro. And I'm going to start juggling on the beat or whatever. And the thing is, you know, in these in these one time only kind of variety shows where it's like an act and then another act and there's no rehearsal. What happens is the act before you, they have like, say, a 10 minute long song and the act is only six minutes. So they can kind of hedge their ending a little bit. They don't run out of music. Right. So the technician, the person bows and the technician fades out the music and they turn the volume down to zero. Right. And then it's like, they don't remember to bring the volume back up. And then they start your music and they've missed the, you missed the first eight counts of your music. And then they remember like, oh, oh yeah. Like there's no music. I better turn the, I better fade the master volume back up. And then you're lost. And then I'm lost because I've choreographed a five minute long routine or whatever. Right. Um, and just little, little details like that, that just happen all the time. So for example, in terms of music, I remember really, really, really consciously thinking, okay, I'm going to go do this juggling festival next week, but I've just been burned too many times in the past with this process. I don't think it's anybody's fault. You know, I don't think it's like people are incompetent or there's something inherently unprofessional about the situation. I just think it's a brutal rhythm to be like, hey, we're going to rehearse this show out of nowhere and we're going to, we're not going to even run through the whole thing and we're going to expect it to go perfectly the first time we ever do it. That's silly, right? It's like any sort of juggling you do, you wouldn't pick up seven clubs for the first time ever and expect to catch them all. It's the same thing. Like, oh, let's just rush through this tech rehearsal um, and then we're going to run the show tonight perfectly. Like, obviously that's not a human, that's not a, that there, there's no humanity in, in that process. And so I remember thinking, okay, I got this juggling festival next week. And so I'm going to play the music myself. Because then that way they can't mess it up. Like I'm going to play the music. And then I thought, well, the best way to do that is um, they probably don't have the technical uh, equipment that I can have an audio line on stage. But I figured they could have a microphone because everybody has a microphone. So then I was just like, okay, I can get a speaker and hold a microphone up to the speaker. And then that, that kind of started this evolution of this idea of I'm going to run the tech myself because I'm in a situation where... I can't trust other, I can't trust the process or the infrastructure that's already there. And this idea then that there, there came, there, there started to come an aesthetic out of that 
because there was this there was a speaker or a boombox on stage with a microphone held up to it, which is pretty silly, right? Like if you think about it, like as an aesthetic, it's kind of stupid. You're in a theater with a beautiful stage and proscenium arch and like curtains, wings and legs and all these things. And yet the, <laughs> the, you know, the aesthetic or the illusion or the look of the, of what I'm presenting on stage is a little bit not professional because it's not professional to have a boom box with a microphone, <laughs> like, like pointed towards the speaker. It's a little bit silly. And then I started to lean into that. I thought, Oh, well, that's kind of fun though, because then I could start to play around theatrically with that look too. So it was like, you know, you could, you could move the microphone uh, far away from the speaker to get a fade on the volume, or you could, you could grab the microphone and talk into it, or you could kind of like move the microphone around physically and play, play around with the situation to acknowledge it, to not try to pretend that you're doing the normal thing, but to kind of acknowledge and say, yeah, yeah, we're doing like a little bit of a different funny thing here. And, um, there's like, there's a, there's a point to that. So that's when I first started thinking about these ideas of just practical solutions to logistical problems in terms of light and sound and rehearsal time with a technician who you've never met before. And that's another thing that I think about a lot in my work is that I'm a, I know you have spent thousands of hours in a studio working on your technique and your compositions and your, your physical actions. And you've also spent thousands of hours thinking about your performances and choreographing them and conceiving them. And then it's kind of really weird that at the end of the day, you come down to the success of your performance relies on a person you've never met before, or you just met an hour before, right? So like you rehearsed for years to perfect this thing that you wanted to craft and show someone. But then at the end of the day, it's like, well, you know, here's here's a technician who I just met a half hour before and we didn't have enough time to really go down through that queue. And then you go to present this thing in front of an audience that you've worked for years of your life. And that technician, you know, misses the cue. It's just such a weird process is what I mean. It's such a one, it's such a lopsided process. Like it's not equal or balanced at all. So I was really thinking about that, all those kinds of things in the start of this, what would eventually become what you started calling folk circus. Do you want to, now I've been, I've been ranting for a long time, but. No, but I think we need to, you need to connect, you need to keep connecting up until. Sure. Until the format was like established in terms of, okay. in terms of like touring and stuff. Oh yeah. I can keep going. Go for it. <laughs> cool. So, yeah. So I had this relationship with, with lights and sound basically, um, from the experiences I just told you about. And then it turned into another sort of entry point into this kind of work, which was I was performing in, in Germany and in Berlin for a year with the Seven Fingers with the show Loft. And I remember three quarters of the way through the run, you know, 10 shows a week or whatever, sometimes during the holidays, maybe 12 shows a week. I don't remember. Um, I was on stage and this is a story I've told you and many other people many times before, but I was on stage doing my solo in the show. And I couldn't remember if it was the first or second show of the day. And I remember juggling being literally in the middle of the routine thinking, man, have I already done this once today? Did it go well? I can't remember. Or wait a second, maybe I have to do this again later tonight. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. And then I was so disturbed that I, as a performer, I was standing in front of people and I literally just couldn't even remember, you know, what time of day it was that I was so kind of, in one way checked out or disengaged from the experience, I found that really disturbing. 
And there was also a quality though, I have to say of that run. I mean, for the most part, it was a really fun time. I mean, it was super exciting to be part of that process, but it was at the Chameleon Theater and, you know, maybe Loft, I don't, we don't need to get into this. I haven't thought about this much, but maybe Loft was a little bit more theatrical than they usually have in that venue. I don't know. Or Loft would normally play venues that had a little bit more of a concentrated energy in terms of the audience focus. But, you know, people are going to go to Chameleon. They're going to order drinks with their friends. They're there for a good night out of entertainment and fun in Berlin, <laughs> like German entertainment. And then you come see Loft, which has, you know, some artistic overtones and a little bit more serious, emotional, somber moments. And so, yeah, people maybe weren't, it wasn't exactly matched up is what I'm trying to say. The atmosphere of the show and the atmosphere of the audience was maybe a little bit mismatched, right? Like you just out for some drinks with your friends and then somebody's there being a little bit maybe too serious for that vibe. And and that's also why I remember being disconnected from is this the first or second show of the day? Because the audiences weren't there to see me. The audiences weren't there to see the show. They were there to do the chameleon experience, to have the chameleon experience. And in many ways, those things did line up. Going to see the chameleon experience and seeing, for example, my solo in Loft, they did match up many times in terms of the what was expected and what was presented. But on the other hand, I really remember thinking, man, they're disengaged from me because they're there talking with their friends during my solo ordering. And there was like there was like a bar service during the show, right? So like waiters were coming in and out, like serving drinks, uh, during during the show right and then at the same time i'm on stage from the opposite end being like have i been here before already today or not like i'm also just not present in the same way that i thought maybe i should be sometimes i it like really disturbed me that moment and so then i just imagined this idea of i'm only gonna i'm gonna make a project like we're, we're kind of decoupling here from the economic uh, mechanism of my life like I mean, money, I'm not talking about money right now, but as an artistic idea, I want to do a project where the people I'm performing for, they're there because they want to be there for what we're going to do specifically. Mm. And I want to be there for them specifically, mm. that there's this relationship that's really um, matched up perfectly. And that's when I started to think about this idea where I said, well, the economy of such a thing and the because that's a whole other conversation about the market and what's possible with the the business of doing a, a project, right? But I thought, hey, it doesn't even matter if I'm in somebody's backyard. <laughs> it's not about the infrastructure or the economy. It's only about this kind of relationship between the performer and the audience that they both choose to be there specifically for that occasion. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, it could just be in a backyard. It could be in a dance studio. It could be in a community center. It could be wherever. And then that was already choosing that kind of venue, which by the way, of course I could have been in a theater. That wasn't the problem. The problem then becomes the economic structure that, or the economic mechanism that allows that, which of course wasn't there. So it was much easier to go to my friend's backyard than it was to rent, uh, to rent a theater for 3,000 seats and try to fill that out with the economics and logistics mm -hmm. of that. And then what that turned into was, well, if we're going to perform in somebody's living room, which remember we did the the rich, uh, yeah. the, the mansion in Tennessee or something, Kentucky, whatever. I mean, if we're going to perform in somebody's living room, that's not a theater. And then you have to take care of these logistical things like light and sound and 
set design and and all these all these production elements that we take for granted in a normal theatrical space. And I just have to say then that my previous experience of kind of trying to be more independent than than the traditional theatrical environment with having a huge production team that went very well then with this idea of, okay, I want to do this new project where I just want to perform for people who want to be there. And that just happened to be in spaces then where my previous experience of like, well, I'm going to start my music myself. You know, that was kind of a natural fit. Those things went hand in hand. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that I didn't know that about that, the setup, like with the sound and the lights and that, that it kind of came from two directions. Like it, on the one hand, it comes from the experience of, of not having, yeah, you're creating this show on the fly with a technician you met 10 minutes ago and you have a 20 minute time slot. So that often makes it not the best result in terms of that technical experience. So there's that from the one hand and then from the other hand, it's your this idea of, of, of meeting people for real and performing for them for real and that both you and them have that as their intention. I mean, there's a couple of other really clear starting points. To, I mean, we're almost there to the yeah. whole thing, which is that when you're in a theater, I mean, when I, when I first started doing Shoebox Tour, I kind of immediately realized a couple of things. And one of those major epiphanies or, you know, epiphany is too big of a word, but like kind of, you know, awakening moments, moments of awakening for myself about what was actually happening in the world around me when I was performing was that when you go to a theater, there's all these unconscious clues that are given to you as an audience member and feeding into your expectations. So, for example, you just you just take for granted so many things you take for granted, for example, when you walk into a theater that there's going to be a bunch of seats that are all facing the same direction and that there's going to be a big empty space where they're all facing and that's where the performance is going to take place, right? So you don't even have to think about it because you're just going to sit down in that chair. It's already physically oriented to point you towards where the performance is. Well, when you're performing in somebody's living room, there's maybe a couch along the wall. There's a rocking chair in the corner. There's some stairs that people are hanging out on the stairs and it's not clear where's this person going to perform where should we look where should we situate ourselves how do we orient ourselves and the same thing goes for the black curtains that normally hang in a black box theater on the sides and the the lights the lights in the room in a theater they highlight the stage normally you have a general wash the general wash just lights up the stage area and the and the people in the audience the house it's dark and this is just all like really subtle i mean subtle or not subtle but i mean they're unconscious clues that we all just take for granted Hey, I'm going to go see this show in a theater. The stage is probably going to be raised up, right? For sight lines if you're on a if you're in that kind of a space or if you're in a black box space, the the audience is usually at a rake, so the audience is raised. There's some concession to sight lines and things like that. So that's one thing I realized immediately where I was just like, "Hey, if we're not going to perform in theaters, we have to acknowledge all these things that we take for granted because we have to confront them in these environments in different ways and we can get into that in a second the mechanics of that mm-hmm. because a lot of ideas came from con- confronting those things we take for granted and the other thing i realized pretty much immediately was i remember when i was in you know in school uh, growing up in ohio and i would have a school assembly and sometimes the school assembly would be a perform a performer who was going to do something and it, it would take place it would take place in the library of, of the school 
And I remember distinctly the performer coming and hanging up a, a black curtain. And the black curtain would be, you know, I don't know, eight feet tall and 12 feet across or something, right? It wouldn't be very big. And the hanging up of that curtain, it said a bunch of things, actually, looking back on it. It said, number one, we're all going to pretend that we're in a theater. <laughs> that was the main thing. Like, hey, we're in a library, but by hanging up this black curtain, we're referencing all that infrastructure that a theater would normally give me. We're referencing a raised stage. We're referencing a really big sound system. We're referencing really good lighting. And even though we don't have any of those things, this black curtain is a nod towards those values and qualities that we all know, which brings up the second point, is professional. There's this idea of validity and of quality. So, hey, I'm not just going to come and perform in front of the book, the, the stacks of books, the racks of books. Um, but instead, I'm going to perform in front of this curtain. And because I'm alluding to a theatrical environment, that's going to give me more credibility in your eyes. Because, again, you unconsciously associate all that infrastructure with me now. And so, therefore, my performance is elevated and you're going to, you're going to pay me more attention. And for sure, um, the black curtain, again, unconsciously does many of those things for the audience. It also has its own drawbacks. I think one of the one of the one of the one of the main things I wanted to do artistically in confronting this kind of puzzle of how do you deal with these expectations when they're not, you know, when the infrastructure is not there. How do you communicate to an audience who's used to being in a theater but now they're in a non-traditional venue and you still need to do a performance that's that's engaging? And one of the first things I realized was, and this can kind of get into the Hema, this Sigurós, uh, this Sigurós movie, this tour film where they went and they toured, uh, they toured Iceland basically out outside. They went to nature. They went to, they they weren't in concert halls. They weren't in they weren't in uh, perform uh, music venues. They weren't in bars. Right. They were outside in the nature doing their music, and I kind of thought immediately hey, it's so cool. They're not pretending that they're somewhere else. They are, they are being in the moment where they actually are. And that means if you go to the library, you don't hang up the black curtain because, hey, we're not in a theater and we're not going to pretend that we're not, we're not, we're not going to pretend that we're not in a library because in one way, a library looks super cool. And so why not work with that? And just a little, a little side note before then uh, you should ask me. Uh, what what you wanted to ask me, but a side note on that is, so at first I tried to perform without any sort of set, we could, we could call that set design, that little black curtain thing. But then I, and then I'm, then I'm, oh, I'm really in the space, right? And you have this big conceptual thing in your mind where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm transcending my, <laughs> you know, I, I'm being conceptual. I'm, I'm not in a theater, so I don't have this infrastructure. Now I'm in a neutral space. I'm in a dance studio. And I'm pretending it's a theater, but I'm really being in the dance studio. So I'm not going to have a backdrop. But the thing is, there's, there's the big problem is that's just in your head. And the actual function of the black curtain serves another thing, which is that it fills the role of drawing the people's attention to where the performance is going to be. It does concentrate the energy. And that came my first big challenge, which was how to have a set design that at the same time was transparent enough to not hide where we were, but at the same time was visual enough to draw people's focus to where is the performance going to happen and to kind of concentrate the, the attention in the room to a certain, you know, physical location of the room in the, in the room. So the audience just knew where to look 
like as a very basic yeah. premise. And and one of the major um, maybe this maybe this is a major part of folk circus. I don't know. We haven't we've never really sat down and and lined these things up, but the costume then becomes a main focus of the set design. It, it becomes part of the set design because normally these set designs are they're they're minimalistic by necessity. I mean, these projects also had an economic limit of like we don't have a lot of money and resources to do them. So many times the set design was minimalistic, but also the minimalism helps with the transparency. But then because the set design isn't an overbearing kind of overarching or very strong, like the most strong visual, then the costumes become, they come, they, they become more visually important. So I started to think a lot of times that the costumes themselves were either the whole set design or also part of the set design. And that started to be one of the main, you know, artistic uh, areas or ideas in which I could investigate and play around and try different experiments and thinking of, thinking of costume as set design um, because I needed to, I still needed to have a, a focus point in the room, even though I didn't have this nod to a traditional theater, like yeah. with my black background. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I, what I wanted to say is that, I mean, I share a lot of the experiences that you uh, that you outlined here perhaps to a little bit of a lesser degree. But I, one thing that I really can relate to is this observation of friction. And the friction is between this flawed fiction that you're trying to create and the actual reality that you're trying to hide in a library, let's say, right. when you're hanging up your little black curtain. And that black curtain is that flawed fiction of a theater, right? And you're covering that badly of the, of the library that you're in. So what you end up doing, you and everybody that's participating in this, it's kind of like, it's like you're LARPing this theater experience. Mm -hmm. That's what you end up doing. Mm -hmm. And sure, we can all do that. But at some point, there's there like I could, I could sense that friction, and I could to me it felt a little bit silly to to do that. Well, you bring up a really good point. So all the comments I've made so far, I have to qualify and say that I'm talking about myself with juggling. I don't think this applies equally to every sort of performance. And what I mean is juggling for me. Uh, it's concrete. It's actually happening. And so that's one thing where it's like, hey, we're going to be in a theater, but hang up a black, uh, sorry, we're going to be in a library and hang up a little black curtain and pretend we're in a theater. That maybe works if you're doing Romeo and Juliet, where you're pretending to be a Montague and a Capulet or whatever, whoever they were. Maybe it goes better in terms of theatrical fantasy. If you're going to have this fantasy of not being in a library, if you're going to do Romeo and Juliet anyway, well, maybe that's fine. For me, juggling was really concrete. It was like, hey, I'm not pretending to juggle five balls. I'm actually juggling five balls, right? And so then it felt even more silly to kind of underscore this idea that we're not where we are, that we're we're all, you know, engaging in this collective fantasy of this uh, stereotype of a performance or whatever you want to call it, right? So I think there was something about juggling being concrete and that was another thing with all the production elements, I have to say, in terms of like, so, you know, what are production elements? Uh, just to just to lay that out. I don't know if you disagree, but it's like there's, you know, music, uh, costumes. There's, so there's music and sound design, which are coupled related, but different things. There's sound design with music, for example. Well, so, so my OK, wait, so music, sound design, there's costume design, makeup design, set design, lighting design. 
and then there's special effects like maybe fog machine or f explosions or pyrotechnics or something like that. And I kind of break down production elements into those areas. And then I can start to say, because I'm into juggling and I'm interested in, in presenting juggling in the performance, I want the production elements to uh, strengthen the juggling, to follow the same conceptual path that juggling is taking. And again, when I juggle five balls, I'm not pretending to juggle five balls. I'm actually juggling five balls. And then I thought, well, all the production elements should follow the same conceptual uh, framework or guidelines so that I'm in a consistent universe. I make a more impactful performance because everything's in the same world or coming from the same world. So let me give you an example. So then if we talk about sound design, you know, the normal thing is that you get your 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 left and right speaker and you, you put them up on uh, tripods. So you get a nice, you know, a nice spread uh, of the, like a projection of the sound. And then you put them on either side, left and right of the stage, right? So you get a nice stereo field. Well, the thing is, I I always found it really weird because uh, in terms of juggling, presenting juggling, at least for my own personal taste, I prefer that the sound comes from the thing that makes the sound. So let's say I have like a record player on stage, I drop the needle on the on the record. And in the traditional sense, then all of a sudden the sound would come from very far away, if you're sitting in the middle if in the middle of the audience, it's coming from either side of the stage instead of, well, the record player's in the middle of the stage. So one thing I, I do now, and I mean, I started doing way back in the shoebox tour stuff very intentionally was I put a speaker behind the record player. So the sound came through, like physically through the record player because visually you see somebody drops a needle on a record and then where does the sound come? Well, it comes from the record. I mean, it comes at least physically where the record is. My point being that you can line up your production elements to follow the same conceptual framework of your of your performance, whatever that is. And in my case, I think juggling is concrete. So I said, well, maybe the production elements should also be concrete. And that has, uh, yeah, that has implications in terms of design and artistic choices and, and whatever else. Yeah. Uh, I should say what LARP is, live, yeah. live action role play. So when we're LARPing a theater experience, that's what I mean. Yeah, we're all pretending that we're... we're pretending in a... that, and everybody knows that it's pretending. Uh, I think, I mean, uh, there's a couple of things I should comment on. Like the one thing is that you're juggling and the juggling is real, whereas in Romeo and Juliet, it's a, you're playing that. But I do think that you could... I mean, you can also situate theater on a level of play and that, that play, like kind of like Shakespearean approach of theater that we're playing Romeo and Juliet, but we're playing it to you and everybody's aware of that to so the audience, you know, the yell, yell out suggestions to the actors, etc. But, but so, so I don't know if it's, if it's genuine to the actual nature of, of of what you're presenting if it's theater or juggling but i think it's more of the aspect of, of awareness that's that comes into play like because if if i hang up a black curtain and i pretend that i'm in a theater mm. and i pretend that it looks like we're in the theater and everybody can see that that's not the case that i think is a problem or that becomes a problem to me Whereas if I hang up a black shitty curtain in the back that does that covers the library poorly, maybe maybe there there could be you know like that's also something we can joke about about if we if we are aware about it. Uh, 
So for me, I think it's about awareness and and what you what you you know how you treat the the space that you're in uh, intuitively or consciously. Like okay, in term yeah. in terms of this awareness, I, I think there's a couple of things to to yeah to go into detail about that because the thing is, I think many many of the things we've been talking about so far people really aren't aware of consciously, right? So it's all these unconscious cues that you kind of need to, because they're unconscious, they're hard to find. Like you just don't think about them. That's the whole point of them. And just just this, this idea that if you, if, you, if you talk to somebody who came to see you know, a shoebox tour show, for sure nobody's going to walk away from that show being like, man, that set design was transparent and yet visually focusing. <laughs> hopefully what they do is they walk away from the show going, Hey, that was a fun show because they actually saw the show. They weren't distracted and it could be in a really subtle way. If you didn't have that kind of infrastructure, like for example, last week we were in Lithuania and we did two kinds of shows, right? We did our quote unquote bigger show with two suitcases (laughs) that we could fly with. But then we had these uh, school performances that were shorter and we had one suitcase. And then in the one suitcase show, you, we didn't have the, bigger set design for those shows they were just quicker in and out and like less infrastructure and i think the danger then is that i don't know if anybody would ever walk away from either of those shows saying they're better or worse because of the one or two suitcase (laughs) situation Mm -hmm. but i think maybe in the school show that they could have potentially been less focused and then maybe they wouldn't have been as impacted by the work and maybe they and for sure they couldn't articulate that why but i can definitely articulate why and say some of those rooms we were in i wish we would have had the bigger set design to give the kids the attention like for example we play lots of sports halls at schools the gym in the gym and sports halls man those are echoey and they're huge cavernous and the energy the focus i mean just evaporates away right it just floats off because it's a huge cavernous room and then we're, we're kind of over against the wall or in the corner and we're trying to create some sort of intimate space out of a very uh, cavernous, huge space. And so in those cases, yeah, I think having some sort of set design visual element as an anchor definitely gives an unconscious sort of, uh, yeah, it, well, a, 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 yeah, it helps the audience just, they don't even notice it is what I'm trying to say. And then... Yeah, yeah. well, anyway, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. No, but yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to see if we can summarize kind of the the growing ground for for this folk circus thing that, okay, so it comes from this limited technical situation. You know, you have limited time with the technician. If you even have a technician, you... You you have limited time, you know, to set up, to break down, to learn, to rehearse. Uh, you have limited resources in order to create the room where the performance is going to take place, uh, both in terms of like what you actually can bring, but also like what the room allows, how much time you have there. Um, and, and then like, yeah, so there's there's just... Um, ground. What do you what do you say it? Förutsättningar. Um, how do you say that in in English? The 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 foundation mm-hmm. to make a performance looks 
in a certain way in certain places and if you want to it becomes very forced to apply uh, uh an elevated and complicated uh technical setup in that uh, in that environment so then you have this choice between you kind of go with the flow or or you get a lot of friction mm-hmm. well yeah it's about acknowledging the again i'll say the reality of the situation and right. this, this word of reality kind of comes back to folk circus maybe later on yeah when we start trying to break down those qualities of what folk circus might be and why we would call it that name yeah but it's more acknowledging the situation as it is rather than pretending it's something that it's not and i don't mean that from an artistic standpoint i just mean that normally from just a a a logistical standpoint even like for example i remember one thing from shoebox tour you know i was going to write an article uh for the ija juggling magazine this was years ago when i stopped doing the shoebox tour and it was going to be called like lessons i learned or something lessons inside the box or something like that because i had learned a bunch of stuff about about producing shows and and creating shows for that format and i just remember like a couple little details that were funny which i know you remember but one thing we learned was you don't set out 150 chairs in a row like in rows um because if you get 20 people to come to the show it just looks it looks and feels terrible for everybody everybody in the room including us and the audience is just like oh man there's not very many people here because if you have 130 empty chairs it just underscores the fact that they're all empty so instead what you do is you stack up those chairs by the door right and every person who comes in the door you say hey thanks for coming to the show grab a chair and go sit where you want to sit and then you always have every single chair in the room filled and it feels like a it feels like a unity that you're all you're all there and you're you're not starting from a negative from a deficit right you're just like man all the seats here are filled there's an energy in the room we're, we're all succeeding together even if it's three people at least there's only three chairs there's not 147 empty chairs sitting there right so it's little weird stuff like that that i started to acknowledge when i'm talking about acknowledging the reality of the situation which is there's three people there <laughs> That's the reality. I'm not going to pretend that there's more people there by having a hundred more chairs put out there. It was just silly little things like that. I think that I learned over the years that we did. I mean, you, you helped me, you know, we all learned it together on those tours, making it up as we went. But we were like, hey, I just remember that chair thing being a really important thing. And we still do it today. Like I just did it the other day. Yeah. Um, we, did, we did that in Lithuania, that one show. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's it's been definitely like it's been very liberating to do shows in that way. Uh, I th- and I think one one thing that you actually gain from that, rather than coming to this place, you have a little bit of time, you, you try to force something in there, rather you have this more, um, yeah, the, the folk circus approach where you where you where you go into the the place that that where you're gonna be, then you actually have the the time that you have, you can actually spend that, the, on useful things such as rehearsing or okay what it what yeah. it is rather that's than true. than forcing that's true this this um <laughs> this fiction that's never going to work out anyways onto the space so i think there was a lot of liberation for me in doing that in shoebox in america and mm. in these places but I, I, i'm the point i'm trying to get to is is the iceland stuff because when we did that because should we do do you want to do just uh the elevator pitch about what shoebox is 
You well, see like, that well, we get that on the palate for everybody? Sure. I mean, this whole thing has been the, the comp- this has been the longest elevator ride of their lives so far, <laughs> I think, <laughs> because that is what Shoebox is. It was the, the moment in Germany on stage. And then uh, that was that was Shoebox where it was like, hey, I'm just going to perform for people who want to be here and I want to be there as well. And then that kind of organically grew. I can say I can say maybe a couple little words about it that were fun, um, which is that. And then I had this idea um, because I wanted to be there and we all wanted to be there. I was like, I want my friends to be there. I want my friends to be on stage with me. So that kind of became in the culture of Shoebox was to invite friends along every time. And then it was also kind of in the culture to invite along a person we never knew. Before. We didn't know before, but maybe could be our friend. <laughs> like like we had a couple of Japanese people with us. I mean, Komei and Masaki and Yuri and Teruki and, you know, it, these people who we didn't know and they didn't know us, but we took a risk and... Marcus Monroe. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were friends with Marcus before that. He was not... He's not from Japan. You didn't know Marcus before then? You did not either. <laughs> we. I just feel we've always known Marcus, right? Like no, every... no, no. <laughs> that was because Yoni couldn't come into the country. No, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, so we had... So it was kind of... The, but but just to say, honestly, the, 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 the genesis of that, of that layer was just like, hey, I, I want to be there. The audience wants to be there. Let's share this with friends. Like, let's all be friends. Like, let's be friends with the audience, too, in a friendly way. Not a confrontational, like, you paid a, a bunch of money to come see me, so therefore I have to impress you and you have to be unimpressed kind of vibe, which sometimes was, like, in Germany, man. Like, these people would pay a ton of money to be there, and then they just had this attitude of, like, hey, now you gotta, you know, you gotta live up to my expectation. And that comes back to this thing I've been, ta- I've been talking to Frodo and Captain Frodo uh, the past year and a half, man, and... And he, uh, we've been talking about this endlessly, but I have this idea because I wanted, I wanted to say, kind of underscore one point you said before earlier uh, now about this idea of the kind of what you expect is, is going to happen or what level that your, your fantasy is going to be on or whatever words we were talking about before. And it's this, you know, in performing, I think the whole thing is that you want to show the audience something, like you have something that you want to show them and the audience has something that they think they're going to see. Like they're going to come see your show, even if it's a shoebox tour or if it's Frederikstadtspalast or whatever at Carnegie Hall, they have an image of what they're going to see on stage. At the same time, you have an image of what it is you want to actually show them. And many times their expectation will block them from actually seeing what's happening. And we've found that many, many, many times on shoebox tour we found that many times at juggling festivals because, you know, you're at the Saturday night gala public show and people are just like, we love juggling so much. <laughs> and they just can't, they can't see more than that, which is fine. Like, I mean, it's, it, it is, it is what it is. I mean, it, and it can be a wonderful experience and it can be completely maddening to be in that, in that, in that energy as well, that the audience won't let you be something more than what they just demand of you. And so I've always thought that the the kind of the key the key work in performing or creating an artistic well I, I I say it's artistic but whatever you don't have to even use the word artistic or art but in creating a performance is you have to meet their expectations with your expectations and it's in that meeting is the creation of what you're doing so you remember that one year on Shoebox tour I think it was with uh, Komei and Masaki we. 
people were really, in one way it's great, people were super excited about juggling. Like, oh, there's this juggling tour and there's all these jugglers and they're gonna come and juggle for us and juggle, juggle, juggle. And I feel the same, I, I'm the same about juggling. But it was like, when we came there, there was such an energy in those shows of people being like, oh, they're gonna juggle now. They're gonna do the juggling, oh, juggling. That remember the first thing we did was we got all the juggling jokes out of the way. Like we, we wanted to just kind of clear, like that's kind of a theme in all my work is I want to clear the palette. I want to start from a clean slate that me and the audience are on the same level. And we're starting from in one way, zero. We're starting from a common expectation that we don't know where it's going to go, but at least we're in the same room in the same moment. So we did the whole like Michael Davis kazoo four balls on the motorcycle joke. We did the, I'm gonna juggle the knife uh, joke. I'm gonna juggle nine tennis balls and it's three tennis balls glued together joke. We did all these in the blindfold with the one eye cut out. We did all these juggling jokes mm -hmm. and it was very confused. Like, I think it worked okay. Like it wasn't the most perfect opening, but it did it did confound people's expectations at the beginning. Some, you know, sometimes people are just like, wait a second, what is this? I thought these guys were supposed to be good and now they're doing all this cliche kind of uh, hacky, you know, random stuff. And it did help, uh, in some ways, it did help them to kind of open their eyes and be in the moment for real and get out of this mentality of like, they're gonna do the best juggling in the world and it's gonna be crazy and it's gonna be great and there's not gonna be anything else that happens other than that. <laughs> and it allowed us then to have more subtlety and play more games and have more concepts than in the show later on. Cause we started off with this really random introduction. Um, and I think a lot of the years on Shoebox Tour, that kind of became a format over the years, which was, hey, we got to make an introduction that's going to con confront the expectations of the people who are there uh, artistically to let them, uh, you know, be in a relationship with us that's kind of more equal instead of them imposing this kind of, you know, whatever imagined fantasy onto us that they've projected in their mind of like, this evening is going to go like this. And it's like, well, actually, we want to show you like... Eric's gonna juggle 10 balls. And, they, and you're like, actually, I just wanna put a big ball on my head and walk around. And how can they actually see that if they're still waiting for you to do 10 balls? They, they can't see it, right? So you have to somehow break down their expectation and confront that in, in an honest way and acknowledge it. I don't think you can just pretend it's not there. You have to acknowledge what they wanna see. And then you can say, hey, but that's great. And I wanna show you this other thing. And then they have to say, I want to see that other thing. That's the whole conversation. And that can be really hard to do. But I think that's a big deal. That's a big part of the, the, the shoebox tour experience. And then kind of to maybe jump into the, maybe the, the next part of this conversation, or, or maybe miss the last part of the conversation is that so far, we've just kind of been talking about the, the origins of the process of this folk circus thing. But what I want to say is to maybe jump into that next, that next part is because of all these quote unquote limitations, I started to decide that they weren't limitations. Mm -hmm. I started to decide that they were actually, uh, the features <laughs> they were they, because, because, and I'll tell you why. And maybe I want you to jump in here because you experienced most, most of this with me. Do you remember when we were on shoebox tour for many years, not just one year, one show, but many times, the number, do you remember the number one comment you would get after the show? Did you get the same one I got? Anything jump to mind? No, no. Okay, I'm going to say it and you're going to immediately be like, oh yeah. The number one comment we got after every show was this. Hey guys, 
I loved the show. I mean, I'm guessing maybe other people didn't love it as much as me, but I got it. I loved it, right? There was an ownership over the experience with, and we kind of got that frequently for, we got that multiple times for each show. It wasn't just like one show, one person on one stop and one person on another stop. It was like, we would play, you know, Pittsburgh or whatever, right? And after the show, someone would come up and be like, hey, you know, I really, really enjoyed that show. I mean, I'm a juggler or I'm a, you know, insert whatever special thing they were to kind of justify the comment of like, there was always this comment and it wasn't a backhanded compliment, but it was always a qualification of like, I love the show. And the qualification was kind of like, I know probably not everybody loved the show, but I really got it. Like it really spoke to me. And then the thing, the funny thing was, we got that from many people at night. And I started to think about that a lot. And I was like, man, these people who come up afterwards, they have intense person, they have intense personal experiences. And then I started to think, hey, maybe that's a feature of this style of performing mm-hmm. that, that these connections we're making in these, in these performances, they're not for everybody, but the ones we do, we do connect with, uh, it connects very deeply. And there's, some, there's something about the rawness and the nakedness of the work that you're presenting it just directly into their eyeballs without any other layer of artifice, without any special effects, without any lighting, without any huge set designs, without any fancy costumes, without any trap doors, without any Cirque du Soleil stage lifts and whatever, you know, crazy stuff. You're just doing the work, the choreography, the technique. It's just going pretty much one-to-one straight from you physically and into their eyes and ears, you know? And there's something about that that I found really... Um, uh, what's the word to say? I mean, it's, it was better than a traditional style of performing that I had found. And, it, and this could come back too to maybe like a street show. Like I used to do street shows with Sean McKinney and um, there is that immediacy of the, of the feedback from the audience, right? And that could also be maybe, maybe be part of this shoebox tour stuff where it was just like, it's just you and them in the room and it's just, uh, it's just a direct uh communication channel there's no there's again there's no layer of art there's no layers there's not a bunch of layers in between you and them even in terms of physical distance and that's another maybe if if, (laughs) for i don't know if if later on we dare to try to sum up qualities of folk circus but that's one of the qualities of folk circus is that we're all in the same room that became very important like a feature and we insist on that now and when we do this type of work people often ask us um even when we're in a theater they say okay yeah but shouldn't we Uh, light you guys on stage and we should turn the lights off on the audience and we're just like no we want the lights on on the audience we don't want special lights on stage we want to have work lights we're all in the same room i find many times being on a stage these days especially since youtube came and this maybe sounds very pretentious or like a cliche and i don't know if you agree with this but i have found this in my lifetime because i'm old enough to have performed before youtube that these days when you're on a proscenium art stage and you have like a general wash or a blue wash and then there's the people in the seats and they're looking at you, it's like they're watching TV. They're disconnected. I remember really distinctly the time before YouTube because in my show, many times I'll throw, you know, rings out into the audience for them to throw me back or something. And before like really internet time and before YouTube, people would catch the ring. Like they would see the ring coming. And since there was like YouTube, Like people just sit there and watch the ring and many times it hits them in the head because they're just watching TV. There's some sort of weird separation because you're on stage and it's lit and I'm in the audience and it's dark. So we are different people. 
And there's also that traditional hierarchy established, I think, that when you go to a performance that's in a traditional theatrical venue, the status of the performer is elevated above yours. They are somehow in some way superlative to you. That's why they're on stage and you're in the audience. And in folk circus, I think that balance, the relationship between, you know, the hierarchy of the audience and the performer, it's much more blurred. Mm -hmm. It's much more equal. We're all in the same room. We're literally on the same level that we very rarely are we on a rake stage. In fact, last week in Lithuania, we played two venues where we could have been up on a stage and we chose to be on the floor and put the audience on the floor with us. Or many times, like in folk circus, you'll put yourself on stage, but you'll also put the audience on stage. So you'll all be on the literally the same level, physical level. Mm. Um, and there's something about that kind of relationship and hierarchy that we're all in the same room, we're in the same moment, we have the same qualities. And uh, sorry, a couple more things popped to mind while I'm on, my, on this little roll here. Um, but I remember thinking that just to talk about this style of performing then this folk circus that what I'm trying to eventually get to here is like I said, it turned into a thing where it was like a solution to a problem. It, it was just a solution to a problem, right? It was like, oh, the technician can't remember when to play my music or just to turn the music up. <laughs> and so then it was like, well, I'll get a boom box and put a mic on it. And then you know, eventually that turned into, I'm going to put like 10 microphones on the boombox because it looks ridiculous and it's fun to play with that sort of aesthetic. Um, and so then it, it it went from a solution, a negative thing to, to a positive, to a proactive thing, like a defensive, it went from a defensive position to an offensive, like you're taking, you're taking initiative with these kind of things to solve. Um, uh, whatever. I forget what I was going to say next after that. I got sidetracked there, but yeah, but I'll, I'll try to do, do you think it's fair to say like as a summary of what shoebox actually is or was that it's a bunch of jugglers that get into a van and then they tour around, you know, <laughs> the country, let's say, and they play rooms that these rooms where, where the performances take place they the rooms remain what they are in the performance so let's say we played mm -hmm. like a blacksmith's workshop when we, we do the pirate, show we played pirate house in pakistan and yeah house, and yeah. it's still a blacksmith's place yeah it's not there's no imaginary imaginary layer on top of what the room we're, yes. do, we're doing a juggling. We're doing a performance, which is with juggling in yeah. a in a blacksmith room. Exactly, That's we're what's in happening. the library. We're also in the library in the performance. It's not. We're not supposed to imagine that we're someplace else. No, generally that's 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 that, that, that imaginary layer is is removed. Yeah. Uh, even if that's not said out loud when you go to a theater and you watch, let's say, an abstract, you know, contemporary dance. But but I often feel like you're still supposed to be immersed in some kind of visual world that's created by the light and the set and all of that. Like that layer is removed in in shoebox. Is that a fair fair summary? Yeah, think? and again, that just goes back to my my assumption, which again, looking looking back on it now, was an assumption. It's not a given. It was just something that I never examined. I was like, well, juggling is really happening, so we're really here. Like it was just a one-to-one -one mapping. It wasn't more clever than that. Right. And for me, the shift between, between that and, and Iceland, and which is what I'm trying to articulate here is mm. that 
when we were doing that and we were playing the library as a library, we're playing the garage as a garage that came from from the, the 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 technical foundation that we talked about earlier with limited resources and stage time and the technician you never met etc right yeah so that came came from that for me but then when we ended up doing this in Iceland we ended up in these rooms that were so <laughs> uh they were not <laughs> normal to me no <laughs> you know we were in the blacksmiths workshop with the fire with the, with for, the fire the forge. on the forge was on yeah the, yeah. the thing was on there <laughs> and it was hot it and, was hot yeah <laughs> and you know you kind of squeezed the audience in there and there was no natural space for them to even no, put no, them no. in or Just, us yeah or us like everything had to be kind of <laughs> forced into that environment and we still kept that environment we didn't even turn the fire out yeah or the fish factory and you had to climb into that little hole to get inside and mm. and it was this barren room of concrete and yeah yeah it was just the we just found ourselves in these environments that i did not expect and that i there was something foreign about them what that's think, the shift i think what i think is funny when you talk about that is this idea that normally in a performance i i would i would dare even say like the ones we did today here in Denmark. I mean, there's this idea that a performance is going to transport you somewhere or like yeah. take you to a new world. And it was almost like, yeah, going to Patrick's further or, or Dupavik or whatever, you're in these spaces and just the fact of turning up there and showing up and yeah, performing. And again, our performances with juggling, but juggling in those spaces, that was enough of a leap because it was already a bizarre situation so it was very it was very much capitalizing on the 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 place the pre-existing conditions there. I mean that was the, Yeah, that, I, that I think I think that when I was working in the theater you try to create ambiance and you try to create you know aesthetics and the, this fictional world that is strong and then suddenly I found myself in Iceland when you're in places or environments that already have so much character and ambiance and vibe yeah. That that that's so much stronger than and genuine than anything that you could artificially construct. I think that was a big change for me. And I think one one thing about these environments that you're talking about is they didn't have a. And now I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my words here. They didn't they didn't really have a temporal focus, and that was kind of a success of of the performance then because the blacksmith shop the blacksmith forge was just the blacksmith blacksmith forge all the time it never started and stopped and so you would kind of have that experience if you walked in there you go oh yeah it's a blacksmith forge hmm that's curious i don't see that every day and you kind of have this this timeline or this rhythm of time that is less i don't know uh, packaged or something like like separated out whereas when you do the show in there it kind of really focused the moment of like, we're in a blacksmith forge and that's the qualities of what a blacksmith forge is. It's hot, it's dirty, it's kind of dark, it's kind of ominous, it's kind of big and, and impressive. And, and I don't know, you get an emotion. You're, there's an emotion from being there. And what I'm trying to say is the performance, because you had an occasion to look more intently for a moment because our performance was the focus of that moment. It also focused your emotion of that space. And I find a a big value in that, right? And I never really preconceived that. I never thought like, oh, if I go juggle in a forge, it's going to, 
it's going to focus your emotions of, of experiencing what a forge is. But I think it's a different rhythm of performance. It's a more intensely focused moment instead of this general day-to-day -day kind of slower rhythm that's less, yeah, less conscious or, or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I, so, so that shift, like, and I don't know, maybe that's internal to me. I don't know how about the people of, how, how the people of Iceland felt. Yeah. Maybe they were just like, well, this is just an ordinary glacier. Like, what's the big deal? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, but again, the, well, yeah, I don't know either, but I can say that you were there in the forge and Patrick Schroeder, you were there in Jupavik and people watched the show. People mm -hmm. watched us. Right. There's something to be said for that. I mean, they, they genuinely engaged the performance, which was very generous of them. And because what I mean is, they didn't take for granted that that was going to happen. So they were curious. And I don't, I don't think that's a quality that I can always depend on, um, that the audience is going to be necessarily curious. That's, a, that's something you sometimes have to, dare I say, manufacture or something you have to kind of promote that like, and that's what I'm talking about, meeting somebody's expectation about like, what do you, what do you think you're going to see? And many times, if we go back to the juggling festival, public show gala, they, the people literally are not curious by definition because they just want to see one thing. Like they just, they fail. They, 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 they're like not human anymore. They're only jugglers. <laughs> For me, human, human means you laugh, you cry, you do different things first and foremost, and then you can also juggle. But it's kind of like in that juggling festival context, again, expectation, what are you going to see? What are you going to present them? They're just like, we're just going to see juggling and anything outside the scope of juggling doesn't exist. There's that curiosity isn't there. So I think, I don't know if the, yeah, the people in Patrick, Patrick's theater at the pirate house, I don't know if they liked if the show was as, as impressing on them as it was on us, but I have to give it to them that they definitely sat there and watched us. And I think that is not something to be taken for granted. Um, as sad as maybe, I don't know, is that sad to say, but I don't know. No, I think it's good to, it's good to, to know that and, and to be able to, yeah, have a relationship to them as well in that way. Yeah. And I just want to say, I don't, I mean, maybe more to say about Iceland, but just in general, what I want to try to get to more concretely is all these things kind of happen by accident or not an accident. Now we've talked for an hour about like how they came to be, but they all kind of came together by happenstance by as life happens, like random things happen, random solutions occurred. Now this is where we're at. And I really started to think about all these qualities as a, as a benefit rather than as a, as a detriment to the performance, especially because these performances seemed to connect to people in a different way than I had found with the traditional theatrical performing on a stage. And just to say, let's, let's, let's be really clear here. You know, you can do crazy stuff on a stage. I don't, don't get me, let's not forget that in this conversation, you're going to have a million lights at your disposal. If you go see a Cirque du Soleil show, I mean, one of my favorite things to do at a Cirque du Soleil show is count the lights if you're bored. Like, just look up at the ceiling and count the number of lights they have hung up. And it's usually like 200 lights or something. And think about all the stuff you can do with 200 lights and the stage can lift up and down and these huge set designs. And you can have 80 people on stage, right? And these huge set pieces can come in and out and the mood can change just immediately. It can be like an alegria. It can be a snowstorm like a blizzard right before intermission, you know, that can just come out of nowhere. Then so you can literally do quote unquote magic, you know, theatrical magic in a theater. And yet, even with all of those technical possibilities and, mach and that machinery, 
I still think going to, well, yeah, perform in the prison in Thorlaxhaven or wherever <laughs> in Iceland is just, that's, that's an experience that has nothing to do with how many lights you've hung up or, or how yeah. many big pieces of set design you have. So I started to think that this style of performing, which you, which we've been kind of referring to as folk circus so far, um, it, 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 it's, a again, it's not just a reaction to some negative situations. It's actually turned into a whole positive new way of performing that I really wanted to promote intentionally. Like, again, when we, we've, we've, we've been faced even last week in Lithuania with very clear choices, Hey, here's a theater. You can be on the stage. We give you, we give you whatever lights. Like we had a technician, we had a day to make lights with a technician. Right. And then we're just like, Nope, because the, the style of show that we're doing is in this folk circus style. That's what we were presenting on that tour. And so we said, no, but we, we choose to play on the floor with the, with the audience around us in a circle and with the work lights on and with the window shades open for some natural light and to actually be in this room with them in the same room together. Um, and so, yeah, that brings up another, which, which brings up another thing to follow on from there, which is, um, now we intentionally, we intentionally create performances for this style, um, it's not, it's not no longer just out of necessity because everything, everything was born out of necessity, mostly financial <laughs> necessity. But these days it's really, and we, we all create different projects. I mean, it's not like folk circus is the only thing we, we do, but many times it is what I work on is this folk circus idea. And, uh, then it is very intentional by choice. It's not because, well, I just don't have any money. I mean, generally. Um, right. No, but I do think that it's, like as a concept that it actually has consequence for circus and performing in the, in the larger scope because when I, when I go back to that experience in in Dupavik for an example like in in the fish factory and I and and I, and I have that experience that oh I'm not in the library or in the garage of a friend you know or in any of these environments that maybe aren't that special to me. Mm. Now I'm in a fish factory or a water museum or a glacier or, or or now I'm in this you know crazy world suddenly. What that made for me, the consequence that it had for me was that it kind of exposed the format. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't think about the garage before. I didn't think about the library before. Earlier in my in my in my in in the in the process when we played those places, those were just symbols of liberation for me. Mm. It's just like, oh, I don't have to deal with a technician. I can yeah. focus on my routine and my yeah. my act and the thing I actually want to do. And I don't have to think about the technician. I don't have to think about light rehearsal mm. that's gonna suck anyways. <laughs> yeah. Or a light or a sound cue that someone's gonna screw up. You mm. know? So before that point it was liberation. Mm. And like some kind of freshness. But at that point where I'm in the fish factory, then those the reality of what we're actually doing gets exposed. And then I can start to think about like, okay, what are the parts here? What are the mm. uh, the different you know consequences that these choices have and and how we interact with the with the the the, um, the framework that we're gonna put the the performances in mm. so what i think it does what where i think this folk circus stuff is perhaps relevant to just performing in general is that thinking about this journey 
what are the things that it exposes and like can that perhaps teach me something about performing in general or performance creation and i think it can mm. i think it does it does expose awareness like just the simple example that we started with that you're in the library and you hang up hung up a a, a black you know sheet mm. That didn't quite cover the books yeah. and everybody can see, you know, the, the counter over there. It's symbolic. It's symbolic yeah. that just that step of being aware of that and going, hmm, mm. maybe this isn't the best solution for this environment. Right. Yeah. And, and, and maybe so that's realization number one. Yeah. The realization number two is, okay, what are the circumstances that I'm actually in? What is the reality that I'm actually in? And can I work with that instead of against that? And what's the benefit for me and for my creation and for my performing that that's going to give me? I think that's what's relevant about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, just to say the whole Black Curtain example could be the right thing for you, right? Like it depends on what you're trying to do. Sure. Like maybe it's perfect that you go to a library and you pretend like, hey, we're going to be pretend we're in a theater now. That's perfect if that's the... But that's kind of become the default. I mean, that's where people start without kind of an awareness of what that would even mean. Because it has that stigma of, again, quote unquote, professionalism, whatever that means. There's a validity that we a power we give that kind of, uh, image. I mean, I'm really sitting here trying to think of, I don't know if you want to, if you want to join me in this game or not, but like, what are some qualities that we can pull out concretely from folk circus? I don't like now you just did a great little, you did a great job of summarizing some conceptual, you know, value to it. I'm just talking on a more uh, practical level. I kind of come back to this idea that the set design is uh, transparent and it allows you to be there, but at the same time, it's visually focusing. And this idea that the costume is a really big part of that experience than to be visually focused. And talking about costume for a second, it goes to that idea that um, you can wear blue jeans and no shirt and no shoes if you're in a theater and that's your costume because, well, you have a building backing you up. (laughs) Like, you know, hey, I'm going to wear ripped up blue jeans and no shirt. It's like a lot of the Australian uh, companies, like Circa, maybe. I don't know the names, but they do these acrobatic shows. And it's just like minimalistic costumes with ripped up blue jeans and no shirts and no shoes. And then it's theatrically, you know, riveting. Well, it's theatrically riveting because you have a whole building around you as well. That's part of your, maybe you wouldn't call it your costume, but definitely your visual identity. And so wearing up, wearing ripped up blue jeans and uh, no shirt, you know, in the middle of... Uh, a dance studio maybe isn't the most impactful thing for sure. It's maybe a little bit odd if everybody else is fully clothed and you have your shirt off, but again, it's maybe not the best, the most effective choice in that situation. So this idea that the costume does become maybe more important visually because you don't have architecture, like literal architecture there to, to help you be visually focused. And this idea too, then that we're talking about site specific performances but we have a set design that's um, transparent and blah, blah, blah. But it's also modular. That became a big part of the performance. And there's one thing um, my friend told me. He, he tours in a rock band. And he said something to me that really kind of surprised me. I never thought about it before. You used to work in, you used to be in a band. And he told me the problem or the, the challenge, the goal, the goal isn't that the show evolves every night. <laughs> On, the, on his tour, 
the goal was that the show sounded the same every night. And I thought, oh, that's kind of weird because isn't that easy to sound the same every night? And he said, no, because every venue is different, right? Like every venue, the, the, the shape of the venue is different. The walls are angled differently. The speakers are hung differently. And he said the technical challenge of making that show of a sufficient quality every night, and that's what he meant by being the same every night, of a certain level of quality every night, that was the challenge. And that really struck me as a fun, as a, 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 and that really struck me as like, wow, I never considered the challenge to be in that way before. And when I think about like the shoebox tour stuff and the, and the like being in Iceland and being in America and when we were in Japan and, and all the other places we've done this kind of work, it's that the, the set design is modular, not in the sense that you're just literally going to change up the show every night because you're bored, but you want to give a consistent, uh, I don't say emotional experience, but you want to, you want to give a consistent experience in terms of quality that the work has the same impact each night. And maybe sometimes the stage or the, sorry, the stage, the stage area that, that we create ourselves, we make it a stage, the dance floor or the, the, the warehouse, you know, the warehouse floor or whatever the, 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 the blacksmith place. Um, maybe it's big, maybe it's a really big one night and then you need to fill that space like physically to help the audience be with you in the same world. And sometimes it's really tiny. Like we did cafe, uh, Babalu and, and downtown Reykjavik. And then it was like, it was the smallest room we'd ever been in. And then your set design has to be modular. So I think that's like, but modular, not to the point where you're just changing it because you're bored, but to be consistent, mm -hmm. you're changing it to be consistent. That's the weird that's what my friend in the rock band really stuck in my head. I'm like, that's so weird. You have to change everything every night to be consistent, but it's consistent with the experience that you're giving the audience. And I think that was an important quality. Do you have more qualities? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. What I was trying to do here is I'm, I'm going to try to nail down what the essence of, of this folk circus thing is. Yeah. I have three things. Okay. And then so after I've said them, then you can... Yeah, see if you agree or if there's anything you would like to add or, yeah. or, or, yeah, whatever. So number one, I would say that I, the performer, I am uh, who I am and you, the audience, you are you and no one is pretending anything else. Mm. That's number one. Number two is that we're in this space that is what it is mm. and no one is pretending anything else. And the third thing is that the interesting stuff in this meeting, that is the real meeting between you, me, the place, the space, mm. and what takes place there, like what I present or what happens. That that's kind of the essence of folk circus, the way I see it. But is there anything else that you see or that, that you would add to that in terms of your experiences? No, that's probably pretty good on that, that level of kind of thinking. Good. Again, I was thinking more practical things like we have this that my comments about the set design and the costume. And I wonder if there's another and that comment about um, confronting the audience's expectations becomes very real in this folk circus environment because we are literally in the same place and we're all in the same room and we are literally confronted with that. Whereas in theater, it can be hard to read the audience. You have that separation of being you have the lights in your eyes and you can't see the audience probably yeah. and there. You are on an elevated stage and you're looking out into a black void. And so um, the feedback is more immediate. Maybe the, the relationship is more intimate, immediately intimate, maybe like more like a street show. So you can really start to tell the vibe of the audience better because you can literally see their faces, each and every one of them. And so there's that kind of, there's that kind of territory. 
Then in terms of sound design, again, I'm, I'm still stuck on this whole thing that what I'm doing is concrete mostly, because like you just said in your points that we're not pretending to be somewhere else or something else. So then it's like, well, sound design means sound should come from the objects that make the sound. Mm. Um, there's another quality to this, to this stuff we haven't talked about, which is like also in sound design, many of these performances, again, this happened by accident, but I think it became a, 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 a feature or uh, yeah, intentional, which is that a lot of the spaces we ended up being in on these, in the creation of kind of this journey of this whole like genre we're talking about is that you didn't have huge audiences. You didn't perform for a thousand people. You performed for like 40 people. You performed for maybe a hundred people in Dupavik or whatever in the fish factory, um, which meant that the noises on stage, the sounds could be acoustic. Mm. And that became a big feature of our shows over the years in this genre. So you didn't have microphones. If I, if I, have, a, if I have a bike bell and I ring the bike bell, ding, I don't need to mic it. I don't need to run it through a sound system. And that goes back to the sound design and that became intentional. It became very conscious. I mean, on our past few shows, we've done like apparat and stuff. Yeah, it's again, it's another way of saying that the reality that it's there doesn't need to be amplified. Exactly. Yeah, literally. Yeah, literally. <laughs> um, so there's something about the sound design on, on the, in relationship to the logistics of the size of the show, just the physical size. And we've really struggled to keep the stuff, the, the show, the, the work intimate, right? Like mm. we've, 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 we've had some nice success with this kind of work uh, sometimes, and we've been offered bigger uh, opportunities, we can say, to perform for bigger people. Like we, we went to Belgium and, you know, maybe you have to perform for 500 people and the show absolutely loses something because, well, it wasn't designed for 500 people. It was designed for 50 people. What is it in Sweden, in our market we play with this kind of work? We cap the audience at 60 people, I think. It's like a 60-person limit. Yeah, 60 or 80, I think it is. Something like that. But anyway, there's a there's like a real clear... And that and that's not just like a arbitrary number. That's like when we're in the studio making those shows, we think to ourselves, okay, if 80 people are seeing this, can everybody see it? Can they hear it? Can they experience it? And we don't do stuff if they can't. And if, if it's going to be more than 100 people, lots of times the shows don't have the same impact because they weren't designed that way. And uh, then in terms of light design, I want to talk about that um, because in one way you can say we have no light design because we, we insist on performing in spaces that have what I call natural ambient light, um, which doesn't mean I, if I'm in the, somebody's living room, I don't turn on the, the ceiling light, you know, but it just means maybe I'll open the curtains and I'll just turn on the light switch on the wall and I won't, I, I'm not going to set up some work lights or some park hands or some Titan tubes or whatever. Um, but the one thing I do want to say about light, so in one way you can say, oh, but your lighting design, it's all in your head that it's this natural ambient light and nobody gets it. Well, I don't think anybody gets it in the audience. Nobody's going to walk away from our show being like, man, the lighting design was deep. They just did natural ambient light. Nobody says that. But when it become, where, where it becomes important is in the creation of the show. That when we're making stuff, again, it's super intentional. We go, oh, well, we're going to perform this in somebody's living room. Uh, we're not going to have special theater lights, so it's better work in this environment. And we have to make sure it works in that environment. I remember I had a dance teacher when I was 18, Randy James. And he said to me something that really stuck with me my whole life. And no doubt it affects what we're talking about right now. He said, you know, the work you make it should be able to stand on its own in the rehearsal studio without any sort of help. 
And what he meant was without special lights, without that strobe light, without that lift on the stage, without the costume that has the sparkles on it, right? That made such a huge impression on me that he said that. And what he meant was the choreographic content, the concept has to be so strong that even without the <laughs> the special effects, the work can stand on its own. And I think that's definitely a huge quality of what we're, what we're labeling for now, folk circus. So you have this lighting design, sound design, costume, set design. Um, I wish I got more into makeup design. I never did. Um, but that is also has a strange relationship with artifice. I remember I was in a show once mm. where, um, you know, true story, and I'm sure you have your own, where a makeup designer came in and I was playing the role of an audience member to the point where I was a plant in the audience. Like I was planted in the audience before the show started and I was going to be a quote unquote audience volunteer who came, who got dragged on stage into the show for the whole journey of the show. And I had a meeting with the, with the makeup designer and they said, um, okay, yeah, so you should, you should uh, look like a normal person and it should be that when you're in the audience, the other audience members can't tell you have makeup on. So we're going to do a very natural looking makeup for you. And I was just like, yeah, or maybe I don't wear makeup. Like, isn't like, it was just, you know, it was crazy. This idea again, that was, that was a clash of the theatrical confrontation of like, we're having this fantasy and the fantasy is you're in the audience. So it has to remain a fantasy, but nobody can know it's a fantasy. Yeah. And so there's something about like, I wish I knew more about makeup design for, for like folk circus, but there is a clash in me of this naturalness versus artificialness. Um, so I think a lot about, for, for some reason for me, a lot of things about the folk circus uh, is about these production elements. And there's one more quality, which we, which we haven't talked to. I'd like to see what you think about it which is just about the choreographic, uh, the choreographic uh, element of the show. So I don't know, I haven't really thought about this much um, beyond observing that it's happening all the time, but we have a rhythm on our shows that's very, um, it's very clear. Like I have to say the work I do with you in this kind of style is very distinct. And it might have to do something with just the format of the show in terms of production elements and everything else we've outlined so far. But it's like, there's a certain rhythm to our shows that works. It's like you present an idea and you can go three or four steps into that idea and you have to change the idea. And I don't think it's just the market or the maybe even the demographic of the audience. It might have something to do with the, the, uh, that the, the environment and the format kind of dictates the work to be in that way. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I do think there is something there because very few natural rooms have you know that level of 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 uh focus. focus that you can have on a theater stage with lights and blackouts and wings and stuff like that so i do think that perhaps that brings a certain limitation to in terms of like you know long detailed pieces that evolve over time i don't know there is there is a folk, there is a feature to the work choreographically where details are important. Yeah. Uh, they're more important than in other situations I'd say because there isn't much more else going on. I mean, it is minimalistic the work in one way. You could say it's minimalistic. And I just want to say that minimalistic doesn't mean you don't do anything. Minimalistic means you do the least uh you do the the least work possible for the most amount of if, uh, payoff like of effect, you know. And so details become important. Like the work is, de it's able to be detailed. 
What I mean is we're not doing high, low, fast, slow here, which is that you have to do your pirouette and then your shower and then your neck catch. You don't have to just separate your techniques out. You can do five minute long head roll variations. That is very effective in folk circus. So details are important, but maybe what it means is you don't do a 30 minute long head roll exploration that you don't go that deep into it, but you can take steps and there's something, but there is some sort of rhythm where it's like three or four or five steps in one direction, but then you got to change your path or, for some reason, you know, I don't know. There's yeah. a quality of that to the work that we, we seem to have. Um, I don't know what the word is. Like we seem to have, you know, stumbled onto and like kind of unconscious or yeah, you know, yeah. we, we kind of keep coming back to that format for some reason. It seems to work. But I can't say more than that. Why? Other than, than like you say, it's not a theatrical environment where you can really dive deep into in, in that same way. Of, like, like you can't take 10 minutes to come on stage. Right. It's not that kind of environment where you take the focus, the rhythm of the focus is definitely different in this folk circus thing. Just because of the infrastructure of your environment, the physicality of your environment. It doesn't allow for that kind of attention rhythm to, to unfold in that way. Um, so yeah, I don't know, choreographic and there's all the production elements. I don't know. Yeah. I had a, I had a question for you and, um, it's because I was comparing this in my mind, this, I was comparing folk circus to, let's say when I visit the Royal Dramatic Theater in, in Stockholm. So in that room at the theater, like I feel as if I'm, there are things that I'm supposed to believe mm. for the performance to kind of, to, to, to be immersed in it. So there is this, this, and even if it's not said out loud, I still feel that that is kind of imposed through all the theatrical elements and all the the the, the theater technique and, and and all of that lights sound all of those things so there is this question about suspension of disbelief that i that's kind of required yeah from me to at different extents depending on the performance of course but it's it's very common that there is this requirement of suspension of dis disbelief so i would just wanted to ask you in terms of folk circus is there any suspension of disbelief required from the audience or is there anything else that's required from the audience? What do you think? Well, there is, but maybe not in the, it's going to be hard to talk about it because I don't think we have a clear language to talk about it. I think there can be moments of suspension of disbelief. Like we can set up a game. We've done games a lot. Remember we used to yeah. do some blindfold race and some other clothes race and some jump rope race or something. We can, you can set up a game and that's definitely a level of kind of contrived, right? Um, but it's always done, I just don't have the language, but it's, it's, it's a different thing. It's, it's different than pretending uh, some sort of narrative. It's, it's, or yeah, it's not, a it's not so much a story, it's more of a situation generally, like the, the, the suspension of disbelief that people are asked to believe in. Um, I mean, it's as dramatic as juggling choreography can be. I mean, you can set up some sort of uh, tension, that's for sure. And that tension can absolutely be completely artificial. <laughs> like when you balance the glass of water with three pen on three pencils on your head. I mean, that's not, that's not hard. That's nothing risky. That's nothing whatever, right? But you can have that moment of tension of like, oh man, it's going to drop the water and get everybody wet. 
we're gonna smash the glass. So you can have tension and you can definitely set up games. I'm very hesitant to say that those are the same thing as having the suspension of disbelief um, because somehow they are still directly tied to a concrete action somehow. Um, and the other reason I'm failing to have like a good language to talk about this is because I think a lot of what is expressed in these kind of performances is abstract. And you just by by definition cannot talk about it with words. I mean, what is the show about that we did today? I like the show we did today, um, it was folk circus genre, right? And so what what did that show express? I mean, in the end of the day, the show expressed whatever people felt when they saw it, which is such a non-answer, but like, what else can you say? I don't know. Can you, or? No, no, but I think that's, that's correct. I mean, that question, like, what does your show express or say? I mean, I think that's, there, there's a there's an unwritten expectation in that question, which is that what what that expression is 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 uh, rigid. It's it's not mm. uh, right. It's what do you say? Solid. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not flexible. And I do think go, yeah. with with a lot of art and with a lot of abstract performing, it's it's not. Uh, the 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 expression takes place in the mind of the spectator to varying degrees right like sure i could do things that are very concrete and the audience probably going to have similar takeaways but the expression can be abstract and then it's it's just different so i don't know how relevant that question is for abstract performing or or any abstract art mm. it's just like what what do you what does it express it's just like well yeah I just I think it's it's uh it's it's the wrong question to ask to begin with. I mean, in those cases, like you're kind of pretty much stuck talking about process, <laughs> like because I can describe concretely the process. That's what this whole discussion has been today so far. Is just describing the process you've taken to get to that point, but that isn't what it expresses. Um, but it's the one thing you can concretely talk about. I don't yeah. know. So normally that that question of what does it express, it gets con the answer gets confused with, well, how did you make that performance? Right. Those, those are, that's kind of a, a tricky, a tricky situation to be in. Um, I, but I want to ask you a question and maybe we're, we're going to wrap this up like with this kind of idea here, but you came to me and you said folk circus and, uh, we talked in the car the other day about this name folk circus. We tried to think of another name or, or why we called it folk circus and this and that, but why did you just kind of intuitively kind of come up with that name when you casually said it to me i don't mean you well i i uh i was thinking about that that the shift there between shoebox america and shoebox iceland and what that did to me and i mean these are thoughts that have been kind of you know growing in me and the, the articulation of them to become so concrete enough so that i can talk to them to talk about them i mean that's taken a long time but i i think Eventually, you know, I had, they started to accumulate, the, the components of this thing started to accumulate for me. And it's like, oh, there's this thing. I'm, I am me, you are you, no one's pretending to be anything else. Like, it's very concrete, you know? Mm -hmm. 
the space that we're in is what it is and no one's pretending anything else. It's it's very concrete. And suddenly when that list starts to accumulate and, and then it becomes a thing, you know, like, and then I had to name that thing in order to, for those thoughts not to to just evaporate yeah, into, yeah. well you gotta name something before you can talk about it yeah exactly so then I, I the first thing that came to my mind was like folk music and these other how should i say examples of performance that take place in ordinary spaces and the first thing that came came to my mind that was folk music uh I mean, I think we agreed in the car because I, I, we ended up, I ended up looking up what folk music's definition was in folk dance and neither of the definitions really matched to what we're talking about. But there is some sort of, um, you know, kind of uh, connotation or feeling connected to this, this idea of folk circus that feels right intuitively. But I think, yeah, technically it's, it's maybe the wrong word. Um, but it, what, what we're trying to get at is that quality of connecting to people in a... I don't know what is it, is it a humble way? I mean the shows are also humble there's like a quality of like we're we are humble but that that's also the other qualities that we're talked about kind of makes you humble in terms of you're just being real you're just being yourself you're not you're not putting on another level of like I am you yeah. know this other you know this other elevated character um so there's a humbleness to it which also kind of goes with this folk aesthetic or something about that like kind of unadorned, undecorated, yeah. Like not bare bones, but kind of plain by choice, or like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But but I think I think folk circus is slightly. It's I don't think it's the good. I don't think it's the perfect name, because it kind of implies a lot of different things. But we tried a bunch of different names in the car, and it also positioned. It positioned what we're trying to talk about today as a, kind of a instigation against other things like. You can't, yeah. you can't call it like real circus because then it implies there's unreal circus and you can't call it, you know, honest circus, honest circus, because then there's dishonest. Like, wait, yeah. wait, what do you mean is dishonest circus? So yeah. folk circus is kind of uh, harmless. Like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't really insinuate that there's like a non folk circus. Yeah. Like it's kind of a humble name. But um, yeah, I think I think we should keep cracking on the name. I don't know later on, but uh I really do think it's a concrete thing and it's very real. It's, it's more real than the name and uh, it's more real than the things we've even tried to describe today. Like it's a, uh, it's, it, yeah, it exists. So uh, yeah. What, what are you, what are you going to say? Yeah. I'd had one more thing to say about folk circus as just since it is circus that we're talking about and it's not dance or, or, or music. There's one thing just about circus and this suspension of disbelief that where circus has this kind of both it's i don't know if it's if it's a blessing or a curse but there's this thing about circus where when you have circus and you also start to pretend mm-hmm. something even if that there's a clash there and even if you hang up the black curtain in the library and there's a clash that everybody can feel that oh the black curtain it didn't cover the library we all can see beyond that mm-hmm. so there's 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 that there's a clash there in the space that you're trying to make there's a clash in the in the on some performative layer where you you're playing a character at the same time as you're doing something that's real i think that the example that came up earlier when we were talking is that 
the performer who pretends to watch TV on mm-hmm. stage. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, the music goes on and they go into this act where suddenly the fourth fourth wall is is up and he sees the audience and there's this mm-hmm. exchange there. There's the, the the what is it? Emotional continuity is broken or whatever you say. Mm. That but since we're dealing with circus and now I come to the curse or the blessing and that is that circus has this or can have this aspect of that it's spectacular mm-hmm. and I think what that does in a situation like that is that you're there and you're the performer and you're watching tv and now you go into your teeterboard act right so mm-hmm. you're breaking that emotional continuity and then you go into the teeterboard act, but it just happens that you're doing the freaking quad back salto <laughs> with the you know four spins in it. Yeah. And when the audience sees that, it is such a visual mm. and emotional blow on them that they, uh, uh, their the the um, the emotional impact overtakes the intellectual analysis of the situation. Sure. Sure. So, and I think that maybe that can happen in music and dance too. I just think it's perhaps more rare. Mm. But I think in in circus it is very present. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of performances that are like that. There are these like pretty crappy layers of pretense sure. on top of the reality of the circus. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the curse and the blessing, I don't yeah, know yeah, which, yeah. which one to choose in that situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't matter that your curtain was shitty and your, Mm-mm. you know, what, that you went from TV watching to the teeter board mm. because you, for the audience, the, the uh, experience was still an overwhelming emotional one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the intellectual analysis was suppressed in that moment. You you were talking earlier about, you know, is there some sort of suspension of disbelief? And I tried to say there could be some tension or games. Another thing we do, though, and it's kind of related to what you were just saying about the Washington TV. Um, but we do so we can do ceremony. There's mm-hmm. something about that you can allow. There's room in this folk circus stuff to do ceremony. So there can be procedure. And in fact, I mean, that's a, that's a magic term, right? I, right. I'm not, I don't do magic, but there's procedure that you, you have your procedure where you need to set up something. So there's kind of like housekeeping to kind of, I don't know, clean or build or, or arrange or organize or orchestrate or whatever. Well, what you can still do is you can still play with the fact that you know what's going to happen and the audience doesn't. So when you come on stage with the gong and you gong, yeah. they don't know. They're like, oh, you know, gosh, what's going to happen now? Yeah. And suddenly that creates a focus in the room. But that focus is real, right? We're not pretending that there's a focus or... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then sometimes just to say rhythmically, because we were talking also rhythmically about how you can compose this kind of work. And we found to be most effective that you have these kind of shorter investigations of concepts. And then you just kind of move on to the next thing after a few steps in one direction. Um, so you have this idea then that sometimes you need more procedure Sometimes you can't just cut to the chase. You can't just go from one image to the next. You need some kind of hustling or bustling around or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. And that's kind of funny to have these kind of rhythmical... You really feel the rhythm in the folk circus. Like the rhythm of the show is super uh, important. It's, it's very... It's tangible, right? And that's maybe, again, in a theatrical environment where you have a fog machine and you have the colored lights, it's maybe harder to, dis- to, to discern what is the rhythm 
of what's happening in terms of more detail. Um, but folk circus, you really get this rhythmical uh, tempo that you ride. Yeah, I think what it is is that there are natural, just human uh, circumstances and rules for how to for the intake of information mm. and that doesn't that's still there no matter the performance context right like even if you're doing folk circus or 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 theater like you can't just hammer someone with information uh for, for an hour there still needs to be yeah. uh, 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 uh orchestration of that information and i think that's what you're scratching all at when you're when you're talking about the ritual and the kind of oh you have to kind of you know fuzz around a little bit before the act can start to give breathing points moments and things like i that. mean lots of times i think about it in terms of new information and i say that there has to be the the um delivery of new information at the right time in the right mm. length of like you can't go too long without new information entering the situation and new information can't come too soon. It has to be given in the right way. And since we're just making up this whole thing about folk circus, I mean, it's just something we're making up. I mean, we're, oh, yeah. we're, we're making real by it, by living it and just talking about it. I mean, this isn't like a, there's no rules is what I mean. We're making the rules up as we go, but there seems to be something about the start of a folk circus show. Uh, that's, that's very particular. And going back to this idea about um, in the early days of Shoebox Tour, really trying to make this confrontation uh, conscious with the audience's expectations by doing a little jokey uh, start or playing a little trick at the beginning. We did the camera slide down the rope one year. We had this, like everybody had to hold on to a rope and then we had a, a video camera on a pulley and then they would slide it down the rope and they'd have to hold the rope and slide the camera that it was like a... Again, something that they didn't maybe imagine they were going to do when they first got there. But there, even before that, in those shows, the show starts uh, in a particular way, <laughs> right? And there's something about that that, that underscores the entire, uh, all the concepts we've been, we've been talking about so far. And generally, generally what it means is uh, the people enter into an environment and we're already there. So there's already that level of artificialness removed that we're like hiding backstage that there first of all that there is a backstage <laughs> there is no backstage it's just there's just the room and we're all there together and when they come in we are again on the same level as the audience we're already there because we're not backstage quote-unquote preparing we're just all there like mm. we're just already in the room and we're all together i don't know you could you could i mean if you wanted to really go far out you could say the show already started because we're there right yeah i mean in that regard it has the it has the structure of a dinner party, right? Yeah. You come in, you're the guest, I'm the host, I'm there. It's not like I'm hiding until the... Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to serve the chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, and then, but then also at the start of the show... Um, well, here, here's one thing to say about the start, the, the quote-unquote real start of the show. We just, many times we start, we just start. We just start, but we start with something that's that we know will produce a visual and a, and a audible cue to focus the attention in the the attention in the room. But what I mean is, we don't start with a, we don't start with an announcement. We don't say, "Hey, everybody! So now we're gonna start. So turn off your phone and look over here. And now, like now's the thing because those speeches, by the way, those are the starts of the show. It's not like that's the 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 pre-show announcement. The pre-show announcement is the start of the show. 
in yeah. this case. And what I want to say about that is what I like about the start of the show that we do now or that we've done all these years in Shoebox, it's just become a thing in this kind of work is you give the audience credit. You give them credit that they actually want to be there. They actually want to see what you're doing and that they're going to follow you. And that if you, if you wang the gong, <laughs> gong, you give them the credit that they're, that they're intelligent enough human beings that they're going to shut up and they're going to look at, they're going to finish up their conversations organically and they're going to look at you and give the, and give you their attention. Like it's just a mutual respect kind of thing. And I, and, and I think there's a quality that, that permeates throughout a folk, a folk circus show where you're not holding them by the hand as if they were too stupid to follow you. You ask them to follow you and they give you their, their attention and they follow you willingly. And there's a symbiosis there of mutual respect and, and, and folk circus that I don't find that's necessary. I mean, I find it in other situations, don't get me wrong, but I find it not to be so strong. Like just to say, having a theatrical lighting on a, on a proscenium arch or a black box theater, when the, when the lights go black at the end of a half hour show, it's done. And that's, and that's great. I mean, you should, you should do those things in those environments. But what I mean is that's a cue that helps the audience know how to react. And in many of the shows you see, like in the other, like if you look at, and now don't, don't get me, we don't need to tangle this up with the discussion about markets and money and business and marketing and whatever. But in the other markets we play in Sweden, you could say some of the other performances in the same market where we do this folk circus style, they definitely are um, not giving the audience as much respect as we do in terms of they're, they're pulling those people along by their noses. You know, it's like, now you're going to clap. Now you're going to look, now I'm going to bow and now you're going to leave and now you're going to come in and now you like, mm -hmm. and it's, it's pandering like, like all the time. Like I think, I think in folk circus, you, I I feel like, especially like well, today we did the show, we did the shows this morning, but also in Iceland and back in America, you can take more risks because, because the people are there, they respect you. But that goes back to the thing from Germany. I want to be in a situation where people want to see me mm. and I want to be there for them. And uh, I don't think anybody comes to the show these days necessarily coming to see Eric O'Berry, literally. But I think they do come to the show wanting to see something for real. It's not, it's not the chameleon situation, the chameleon theater in Berlin, where you just want to have a nice night out with your friends and have some drinks. That's not the occasion we're playing in. And in that way, when you ask the audience to have a mutual respect for you and you respect them enough that they're intelligent enough to like, you don't need to say, hey, the show's starting now. <laughs> you can just start the show in a nice organic way. Then I think you're in a position where you can take more risks artistically because you have that sensitivity to each other. And so you can maybe not, what, I, what I'm saying is literally like, maybe I don't have to look at the audience for the next five minutes. I don't have to do these like side takes where I stare at them after I do a trick. Like I don't have to check in with the audience constantly because I know there's a trust there that, hey, they're going to be with me if I go down this this avenue for the most part, right? I mean, there's some quality of that that I really like about the, the format. Yeah, I, I think you were on to some, another thing that's perhaps worth uh talking about when you were uh mentioning various like technical functions like fade out blackout the music comes on the music goes out these things that we use in order to to compose theatrical experiences and that in folk circus we don't have access to any of those technical functions and i do think that that 
actually brings an interesting aspect to the work because the function of a blackout, not the blackout itself, but the function that it has in a performance, let's say the audience knows that the show is over, Yeah. for an example, then all of those functions that the, that the technical things uh, uh, make, that in folk circus, that has to be done through the work. Yeah, and funny you say about the end of a show, because that's the biggest, that's the hardest challenge we've had with folk circus is how do we get to the end of the show? Yeah. Because we're not doing a concrete narrative where little little Red Riding Hood gets eaten or Romeo and Juliet, you know, spoiler alert, they die or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not doing concrete narrative. We're doing abstract uh, expression. And then because there is the rhythmic element of folk circus where it's like it goes a few steps in one direction and then it changes direction. And it's just like, man, how can you give the expectation to the audience where you've just, you know, you took this turn and this turn and this turn and this turn. And now we're, now we're not going to take any more turns. Yeah. <laughs> like it's so hard. And we've managed to do pretty good with the, well, I have two examples of endings in folk circus. Okay. The, the first idea is to do ABA. Yeah. Well, the circular thing, we, we, cir- we kind of defaulted to that. I, I'm not the biggest fan. Yeah, I'm, it, I'm not going to evaluate them. That's one, that's one thing. It works. We could do. It works. The other one is the point of no return. Yeah, sure. Well, the I mean, I don't think I don't think the show we did today was ABA. I think the show today we did was you know A B C D and then summary of all together, right? Right. That's like yeah, the, yeah. The, but there the is summary, some sort yeah. of compositional format where you can give that expectation of like, well, and maybe that is a point of no return symbolically, like not literally, but just like, well, they just did everything together. What else is there left to do? Like that makes sense to me, yeah. and it wraps it up theatrically. But yeah, that's a. Uh, it's funny you say that, but the funk, yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges of folk circus is finding a good ending and having it resolve in a, in a, in a clear way. Um, yeah. And speaking of endings. Yeah. I think. That's well, no, the- no, I don't want to talk about endings right now. We'll do that next time. <laughs>